Sometimes I am scared to death. Religious people drive me crazy. Sometimes I don't really want to pray. Sometimes I have my doubts about God. And I'm a pastor? I'll keep you Good morning, One Church. How are you guys doing? Good. Fantastic. Glad to, that you're here with us this morning. I want to welcome you guys as well as all of those people listening to the podcast. You're welcome as well. And uh, just want to say a big hearty what's up. Today we're continuing our series called Confessions of a Pastor. And um, as I talked about last week, one of the things that I'm going to be doing is just talking about some things kind of really kind of opening up my armor so that you can kind of see some of my jacked up messness. And once you realize that I'm kind of messed up, and if you're messed up, uh, we can just kind of be messed up together and realize that this is a safe place for us to talk about real issues uh, because none of us have it all together. Uh, We're all on a journey. We're all on a journey to become more like Jesus Christ. And the great thing about it, whether you're whoever you are or you're Billy Graham, you've not made it yet. All right, so we're just on this journey together. Last week, I talked about that my confession was that I was scared of death. This week, my confession to you is this, and it's, it's going to be kind of a weird confession. In fact, before I even tell you the confession, the best way I can explain it is with this video back here. Y'all watch this video. Presenting... Real Christians of Genius. Real Christians of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Christianese speaking person. Mr. Christianese speaking person. When conventional wisdom said no one can understand what you're communicating, you dared to prove them wrong. You dared to prove them wrong. You knew your neighbor didn't know words like Trinity, salvation, and eschatology, but you overused them anyway. You can't stop when people told you what they believed, you had the guts to laugh in their face and wish them luck in everlasting retribution. You gotta be so stand proud, chosen one. Yea, though your words confuse the masses, thou knowest what thy meaneth. Thou is going to explain to you my confession. And my confession is this is I don't like a lot of Christians. Now, that seems kind of odd because number one, I am a Christian. Some of you are wondering right now, I know. I am a Christian, and number two, I'm a pastor, and I spend a lot of my time with Christians. But i got to be honest with you, I don't like a lot of Christians because Christians, some of the meanest people I know are Christians. Some of the most two-faced people I know are Christians. Some of the most angry, judgmental people I know have those fish stickers on the back of their car. And they flip me off when they cut in front of me because I'm going too slow, which doesn't happen often. 
Let me give you some reasons why I don't like Christians. I think, number one, Christians are are judgmental. Um, They portray this holier-than-thou attitude. And, uh, you know, it's either their way or the highway. And um, so I think many times they have this very condescending tone. Another reason why I don't like a lot of Christians is because a lot of Christians are just kind of weird. I don't know what you do for um, entertainment. I turn on TBN. Because um, I got to be honest with you, the, the, the beehive and the fake eyelashes—I mean, that! Wow. All right. Um, not only that, Christians are judgmental and weird, but also we're hypocritical because we talk out of both sides of our mouth. And I'm going to tell you today. Yeah, he's here. I, I'm going to tell you today: the, the Christian that I dislike the most is in this room. The Christian that I hate the most is in this room. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, am, I sit, am I sitting beside him? All right. I saw, I saw that right back there. I did. Is it you? The Christian that I can't stand the most is up on the stage. Because I know I can be the most angriest, most hypocritical, most judgmental person. Let me give you an example just of my messed upness that happened yesterday. This wound is still fresh. How many of y'all go to, uh, went to Rivers and Spires? Um, I went to Rivers and Spires yesterday. Loved it. Had a great time. I ended up wanting to get the, the chicken on the stick with the frog legs. So I go up to pay to try to, you know, order this stuff. And she says, that's going to be 15 tickets. I said, excuse me? Um, yes, 15 tickets. I'm like, okay, I got cash. I got $15. I'm sorry, we don't take cash. So I walked a half a mile, all right, which felt like a half a mile, up to purchase, give somebody cash so that I can get tickets so I can buy some frog legs. And I let them know that this was really messed up. Now, I know this wasn't the person I was talking to. It wasn't their idea. They were just doing what they were told. But I thought it was stupid. And I let them know that. Because I can be the most judgmental, angry person that I know. What about you? What about you? You see, I really feel like that the reason why I I get so angry with myself is because I don't live up to the standard God puts on me. And I know it. Because I know all my stuff. I know that I have issues. I know that I, I frustrate me. And the reason why is because God has called me to be something different. And many times I'm not. In fact, in 1 Peter, it says this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. It, 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 Peter tells us what he's calling me to be. And if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, he's calling you to be this as well. It says this. So you must lead, live as obedient. Is God's obedient children. God, if, if you're a Christian, God is your father and you are his child. Now, we all know that. I know that. My problem is this. I, I, I live like God's child, but many times I don't live like God's obedient child. And there's a huge difference. How many of y'all got children in here? You know the difference between obedient children and disobedient children. They will always be your child, but sometimes you do want to sell them. All right? And I almost feel like sometimes maybe even God feels that way with me. You know, God loves me and He will always be my father and I will always be His child. But I am disobedient a lot. 
want to keep on reading. So you must live as God's obedient children. And look at this next part. Don't, what's the next two words? Let's say them together. Slip back. Let's say it again. Slip back. Don't slip back into your, let's say this, old ways. Your old ways of living. Satisfying your own desires. So slipping back means you're only focusing on your own desires. Just selfish you. I could be that. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be... What is that next word? You must be what? You must be holy in everything that you do, just as God who chose you is holy. Now, holy is a really churchy word, and I'm just going to break that down this morning. Holy, the Greek word for holy is hagias. And what hagias means is to be set apart. To be unique, to be different, to be set apart, to be unique, and to be different. And what frustrates me about me many times is I am not set apart. I am not different than the people around me. I am not unique. Uh, there's a great book by George Barna. George Barna is kind of like George Gallup. He does a lot of statistics and a lot of surveys. And a while back, he published a book called The Second Coming of the Church. And in it, he measured behaviors between Christians and non-Christians. Hey, he asked, you know, what does a Christian do? What does a non-Christian do? And let's compare them. And the results are startling because in this, in, in, in this survey, we realize that Christians really aren't holy. We're really not set apart. We're really not different than the people outside of these walls. Let's look at this. Um... The first one, volunteered at a nonprofit last month. Nonprofit would be like Amway, not Amway. Um, <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Um, it would be like the Salvation Army. It could also be church. All right? So church is a nonprofit. So look at this. Non-Christians volunteered 27% last month, and Christians volunteered 29%. Wow. We beat non-Christians by 2%. Wow, that's great. Isn't it? Keep on going. Donated to a nonprofit last of the month, and that's also including church. So, how many Christians gave to church, put money in the offering plate last month? Look at this 48% of non Christians gave to a nonprofit, 47% of Christians. That's less than half. Said, so, you know what? I'm, I am going to, put, I'm going to put my resources behind. Not only what God is doing, but maybe just give it away to a person in, 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 you know, give it away to the Salvation Army, give it away to the United Way, give it away to somebody who's helping somebody else. So that's not good. Look at the next one. Gave money to the poor last year. 34% of non-Christians gave money to the poor. I mean, you see them, they're, they're holding their signs by the interstate, will work for food. Lock the doors, honey. Roll up the windows. 34% of non-Christians says, you know what? I'm willing to give to the poor. 24% of Christians. You know what that tells me about us as Christ followers? That we don't love very well. We can talk about loving here a lot, but we really, oh, we're different than the world. By these statistics, we're worse off than the world. Let's look at the next one. Christians who've gotten divorce. 
people who have gotten divorced. 23% of non-Christians have gotten divorced. Look at the Christians, 27%. It's almost worth saying, you know what? If you want to protect your marriage, don't become a Christian. That's what these statistics are saying. That is messed up. Wouldn't you agree? I'm sorry, what was that? There's another book. This, this is old data. This is fairly new. A book by David Kinnaman entitled Unchristian. In this book, they also did surveys of ages 16 to 29-year-olds. They, they constitute about 24 million people in America. And what they did is, is they just gave them a bunch of words. And they said, I want you to pick out as many words as you want to out of this list, just random words, and you tell me what your perception of a Christian is. Not the world's perception, your perception of what a Christian is. And they had words on this list like loving, caring, mercy, integrity, compassion. All of these words. You know what the top word used for, for, for somebody that's a non-Christian to look into a Christian was that we're anti-homosexual. 91%. Said what defines being a Christian is to be anti-homosexual. The second most popular word picked was judgmental, 87%. The third top word is hypocritical, talking out of both sides of your mouth, 85%. Old-fashioned, 78%. Too involved in politics, 75%. Out of touch with reality, 72%. And 68% of people said that Christians are boring. That's how people see us. David Kinnaman shot this video of the 16 to 29-year-olds. And let's listen to what they said about Christians. Christians are old-fashioned. Hypocritical. Anti-gay. Live in a bubble. Too involved in politics. They believe that they're fake, phony, um, talk out of both sides of their face, um, have a list of rules and regulations that they have to follow all the time, and they're definitely not fun. Christians always have ulterior motives. So a lot of my friends, when they think about Christians, they think about people who have no clue, really. Uh, they live in a world that's not real. They're just kind of their own little existence, doing their own little thing. Um, and they are hypocritical. You know, some of them, again, we say certain things, we don't follow it up. People assume that you're coming from this closed-minded worldview. My non-Christian friends think that I am always judging them, that I think that I'm better than them. They assume that Christians don't like gay people. I feel like we're just in a place right now where we have to surprise people and challenge their assumptions about what Christianity is because the assumptions that people have about Christianity are so firm at this point that they can actually parody us with pretty good accuracy. You see, when people on the outside look at us and they see us and they see what we're selling, they say, I don't want to buy it. I'm better off without Jesus and what's amazing is that people are today are more open to spiritual things than any other time before. Any other time before. Same study in this unchristian book. They asked these 16 to 29 year olds, if you knew if you know what somebody's a Christian, is that more are you more willing to trust them 
since they're a Christian. 91% of people said, if I knew that they were a Christian, I would trust them less. 91%. That means if if you're a plumber and you have one of those those Christian bumper stickers or maybe the fish on the back, they are more or less not to trust you than to trust you because of what you're representing. Set apart? Unique? I don't think so. You see, people recognize their need for God today. They recognize and they long for truth, but they don't want to find they don't want to come to Jesus because of what we portrayed him to be. When they look at my life and they see, you know what, I don't see love. And I don't see compassion. And I don't see mercy. I don't think I want to be a Christian. Because religion, Christianity, for better or for worse. We're known by what we stand against rather than what we stand for. In fact, that's our big idea today. Christians should be known for who we are for, not what we oppose. Christians should be known by who we are for. We are for Jesus, not by what we oppose. Because many times when they think of us, they think of somebody that we're all about rules. I want you to turn to John chapter 8 because we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture today that really emphasizes our big idea, that Christians should be known by what, who we stand for, not what we oppose. While you uh, turn there, John chapter 8, so open your Bibles, I want to, I want to show you this rose. I love flowers. Uh, in fact, i got a friend who owns a flower shop, and I love going into the flower shop every time. It's so cool. It just smells good. It smells so awesome. And I love the, the texture of the roses. Love this. Watch it. It has thorns, though. You really can't, you can't appreciate this the way I'm appreciating it now because I'm smelling it. You're not. So come here, Kevin. Come here. I, I, I wanna, while we're preaching, while we're talking about the rest of the day, I want you to take this, and I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to feel the thorns. I want you to just rub it in your hands. And I want to pass it all around. So make you're doing good, Kevin. Doing really good. All right, cool. All right. All right, you can sit down. You're upstaging me. All right, cool. All right, while, while that's getting passed around, John chapter 8, and let's start actually in verse 2. John chapter 8, verse 2 says this. Early the next morning, Jesus was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught, caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Picture that in your mind. You see the crowd, and in the middle of that crowd, there's this woman. There's this woman who was caught in the very act. You see these Pharisees and these religious people standing against this woman. Because that's what religious people do many times. We stand against stuff. We stand, we oppose issues. We stand against And these religious people, the Pharisees, are standing against this woman. And not only are they standing against this woman, they're standing against Jesus. 
Because this woman is only a tool in a plan. Jesus has been teaching, the woman has been cheating, and the Pharisees are out to stop them both. Teacher, they said to this woman, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, I want that to sink in. Caught in the act. That should make you blush. This woman was in the arms of another man. This woman is behind closed doors. The guy has no clothes on. The girl has no clothes on. And they are in the act. Think about that. They are in the very act. And then all of a sudden, the covers are jerked back. And in seconds, this very private, intimate scene is made public. Caught in the very act. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Think about it. How do you catch somebody in the very act of adultery? Think about this. I mean, let's take your, your Sunday school hats off and think about this a little bit. People don't commit adultery in the open. Because they don't want to get caught. They don't want a spouse to find out. So they are behind closed doors. How does somebody catch somebody in the very act of adultery? How likely is it that two people are to be the eyewitnesses of this? Because what the law of Moses says is that two people have to see this. Two. Not just one. Two. I wonder how long the Pharisees stood by the window peering in. I wonder, how did the Pharisees even know to go to that house? In fact, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? The law of Moses says if you, if you catch a man and a woman committing adultery. Where's the guy? He's not standing in front of the crowd. See, these are all questions that need to be asked. But the, the Pharisees aren't about following rules. They want to oppose Jesus. They want to oppose this woman. So here this woman stands, the guy's nowhere to be found, and that right there tells me this is a setup. This guy who was probably there was probably one of their own. Because how would they really know? They are standing against this woman. It's a trap. It's a setup. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Let me ask you a question, Christian. The same, the same question they asked Jesus Christ, Christian, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say about this person right here? This teenager. This teenager who is just all about having fun, all about doing whatever, and she is just, she's hanging out on the weekends, Friday and Saturday night, she's partying. She's being free with her body. She's, she, just, she's, she loves just getting around and because the guys make her feel loved. What would you say to her? And then she gets pregnant. What would you say? Well, she's getting what she deserved. You know what? You play with fire, you're going to get burned. 
You know what? She deserves it. What do you say? What do you say that she gets pregnant and she decides to keep the baby? And as she pushes the baby, that's just a few weeks old around Walmart, you look at her with those judgmental glances. See that, honey? See that, son? You don't want to become like that. What do you think if she chooses to abort the baby? What do you say? What about the next one? This is a mom who has three children who's been married for 12 years in a relationship and she has a a smile on the outside but she's breaking on the inside because she feels taken for granted. She's been with a husband who says he loves her at the altar but really hasn't said it a lot in a long time and she doesn't feel desired. She doesn't feel wanted. She feels like a trophy placed up on the on a shelf getting dirty and dusty and dingy. Until one night an old flame instant messages her and she starts a relationship that ends in adultery. And there's shame and there's guilt. And she knows she's done wrong, but really what she wanted was love and she wasn't getting it from her husband. What do you say to her? Then there's Jim. Jim has been working at his company for over 10 years. He is a good employee. He does things by the book, by the textbook, until suddenly he gets fired because he's contracted HIV and it's in the full-blown AIDS and he can't hide it anymore. What do you say to him? Guess you got what you deserve, huh? You know what? Do you say what Jesus says? Do you do what Jesus does? Does your heart break the way Jesus' heart breaks. What do you say? Let's keep on going. Teacher. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses. You know what religious people, they love laws. They love rules. But even Christians, we don't follow our own rules very well, do we? Because their law says you had to have two people. It takes two to what? Tango. That's exactly right. You can't commit adultery by yourself. It's impossible. But they're not even willing to follow their own rules. We're all about rules, but we don't follow our own rules. I'll give you an example. Again, with my life. All right, My wife will tell you that I am a terrible, angry driver. All right, that's just the fact. All right, um, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think twice going out of Walmart. Like if I've, I parked and I've went in, I've come back out, and there's a space in front of me, so I can just pull out and I go down the wrong way. You know, I don't have a problem with that. People got to deal with it because I'm coming. All right, but when somebody else does that, you know what I do? Oh, I, I start pulling my hair out. I start honking on the horn. I don't follow my own rules well. I don't 
I don't, the thing that makes me angry about other people, I do the same thing. And that's how we are. We shouldn't be that way because we're called to be set apart different. But that's just how I am. Rules, rules, rules. You know what? Christianity is not about rules. You can't spell Christianity by using the words rules. You can spell Christianity by Christ because it is about a relationship. It's not about rules. Jesus followed the Ten Commandments and completed the Ten Commandments so that we can just focus on our relationship with Him so that that stuff doesn't get in the way. So even these Pharisees wanted to, didn't want to follow the rules. In fact, they're angry at her because she broke one of the Ten Commandments, right? All right? But the whole reason they're trying to trap Him was so they wanted to kill Him. Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments too? I don't know. Thou shalt not, what? Kill. I think it's in there. This is, and this is why Christians make me crazy. Because they will argue for days over five points or three points or Calvin. Or, are you pre-millennial or are you post-millennial? Do you believe the left behind books or do you not? Right? And it's just, we argue about dumb things. This is not my notes and this is scary, but I'm just, I'm kind of... Frustrate. This is venting. This is counseling for me. I remember in Israel, I was there for a month and I went with all these seminary grads. And I went with this one seminary graduate who, I kid you not, we're on Mount Arbel looking over the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful. Gorgeous. Okay. And these two guys are getting ready to come to blows because they're arguing theological points. Did Jesus stub his toe? Because if Jesus stubbed his toe, then that means that you know he 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 really wasn't paying attention. He misjudged something, so that, you know that doesn't make him perfect. And if he's not perfect, he's not the Son of God. And I want to say, get a life, really. Arguing about st- stuff that nobody cares about. Did Jesus stub his toe? Dear Lord, you see. And again, I think one of the things that we we. We get sidetracked. We start majoring on the minors and not majoring on the majors. And that's what churches do. That's what denominations do. That's what I do many, many times. John chapter 8, verse 6. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. Don't you love their pure, pure motives? Oh, this, to the religious Pharisees, though, this woman was unimportant. Her reputation was unimportant. She was dispensable. And that, again... Yet, as a Christian, a lot of times we use people. We really don't care about them. We use them. Jesus stooped down, it says, and wrote in the dust with his finger. These people, the Pharisees who knew the Bible, they memorized the first five books of the Bible. They knew about God's love, supposedly. They could have loved her and restored her, but they chose not to. They chose to condemn. So Jesus stoops down and writes in the dirt. And by doing so, we don't know what he wrote. Man, I wish I'd have known that. We don't know what he wrote. But I think one of the reasons why he did it was so that everybody would take their eyes, their lustful eyes off this woman who had no clothes, trying to clench a sheet around her. And that all went on Jesus. So that they would not be giving her judgmental glances. Verse 7, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up after writing in the dust again and said, All right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. 
And he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. You who are without sin, you cast the first stone. You've never done anything wrong, you cast the first stone. You've never told a lie, you cast the first stone. You've never drove angry, you cast the first stone. And one by one, starting from the oldest who knew they had enough life behind them to know that they had messed up. The stones started dropping. Boom, boom, boom. And finally, Jesus still writing in the dust and this woman looking down. She didn't have the courage to look up, I don't think. Looking down until all the stones stopped. And both Jesus and this woman, they looked up and their eyes locked and there was nobody else around. There was no one else. We keep reading. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Did not even one of them condemn you? Where are your Who are the people who stand against you? By the way, where are the people who stand against me? Jesus asked. She says, no, Lord. And Jesus says, if they don't condemn you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Listen to those words. I don't condemn you either. If you're a Christ follower, you're not condemned. By the way, where's my rose? Can I get that? Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Um, wow, this is... The petals are coming off. Y'all were not very easy on this rose, were you? Um, it gets all kind of bent down here as well. John, what did y'all do to this thing? Um, it's really messed up. Wow. Rose that's kind of the petals are coming off. What do you do with this? When um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know. And so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, This is the relationship we had just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, why, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the the minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he 
smelled it and he showed how pretty it was and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart, I don't, I'm still wrestling, um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was... Um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip. And you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger. And it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. 2 Corinthians, he just quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might be the very righteousness of of God. You see, that broken rose that stood before Jesus, Jesus didn't break that rose. Jesus says, you know what? I will become that broken rose for you. And that's what he did. He became broken. They nailed him to a cross. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't condemn her. We, last week we quoted the most, the, probably the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will, don't, doesn't have to die but can have eternal life. That's the most quoted verse in the Bible. The next verse, I really think, is the most non-quoted verse in the Bible. Because it doesn't stop there. Jesus continues with John 3.17, and He says this, God sent it into this world not to condemn the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Christ follower, Christian, because you are in Jesus, there is now no condemnation. So if there's no condemnation for us, why do we condemn? If He did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world, then who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? Jesus became the broken rose for us. And yet what we do as Christians is we say, yeah, you messed up. Sucks to be you. 
You should have known better. Huh, I guess you'll have to go to another church now, huh? Yeah, you got what you got. Yeah. And it's no wonder why people who are searching for truth don't come to church to find it. Because I can be mean. You can be mean. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what this church's mission is as we close so that we just cut through it all. Some of you have been coming here for months and you may have this attitude. I'm going to tell you what our mission is. Our mission is what Jesus' mission was. Jesus says in Luke 19.10 that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That is Jesus' mission. That is one church's mission. And the reason why we exist is not to shoot the wounded and to kick people in the teeth and to take a big 50-pound King James Bible and beat them over the head. Our mission is to love God and to love people. And that may mean that it has to get dirty sometimes and that we have to become broken, but that's okay because He became broken for us. So I just want to say from the get-go, if, you're, if your idea of being a Christ follower means, you know what? i got to believe rightly, and when people don't believe rightly, I'm going to treat them wrongly. There are hundreds of other churches here in this town that are for you, but this church isn't one of them. Because our goal is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And the crazy thing about this is I have been this rose. Haven't you? I have been broken. I have been hurting. I have chosen wrongly. I have messed up. I have sinned. And Jesus lovingly takes me in his arms. A verse in Isaiah that comes to my mind is that a bruised reed he will not break. A broken flower he will mend. If you feel this way, I want to let you know you're in a safe company. Because I have been there. And I have been. I've been broken. The great thing about it is Jesus has been there as well. Not broken because he sinned, because he never sinned. He, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. The great thing about being not condemned, this woman, is that we don't have to sin anymore. God can really change us and restore us. He can restore you. He can restore you. He can put the pedals back on. He can make you right. But you've got to let it. Your Father... Lord, many times the very people that I get so frustrated with, I am that person. And Lord, I struggle with people because I struggle with me. Lord, I, I know people are always watching us. 
always watching us. I was reminded of this just a few weeks ago, God, sitting in a McDonald's with my Bible open, praying with a bunch of guys. And I don't know how, I don't know how it all happened, but this lady found out what church we were going to and came to one church because they saw me in a moment of weakness, a moment of me doing good. But Lord, what about those times when people see me for who and what I'm really like? Lord, I pray that I would be able to reflect you. Lord, that people, when they look at me, they would see your son, Jesus. Lord, that when people look at us, they would see your son. In the brokenness of our life, they would see Jesus, in our weakness, that they would see Jesus. They would see nothing but Jesus.